My name is Otto van Eck. If I were alive today, I'd be well over two hundred years old. Alas, I was struck down before I even had the chance to fulfil any promise. Tuberculosis, and I was only seventeen. With my death came the end of a glorious experiment. Oh, how my parents grieved! By then, though, all their hopes of a better world had already come crashing down. But here I am again, resurrected, as it were. My diary's been found, you see, and they say it's an extremely exciting and important find. Perhaps all that effort wasn't wasted, after all. Radio Netherlands presents the diary of Otto van Eck. It is a big pile of papers, handwritten with very big handwriting, and many faults and mistakes, of course. That's also very charming about this diary. Was hidden in a family archive for two centuries, and excitement grew after we had edited the text, and there could be a whole world reconstructed. A history is never written from the viewpoint of young children, simply because they didn't leave texts to us. So it's a very exceptional way of looking at history. Until now, I've never discovered a diary like this. The journal since February 1791, when I started to keep a diary, until now has been lost through negligence. That's how my diary starts. Not very promising, I know, but I was only ten years old. And I had no real interest in writing. However, I did as I was told, and with just a few exceptions, kept it up for six more years. Little did I know that far into the future it would be unearthed, and even a book would be published on it. The Child of the Future, written by two historians, Rudolf Decker and Ariana Bachmann. It's these two whom I feel I now know intimately, who'll help me retell my story. He started his diary in May 1791. Why he did so, he doesn't tell us. But we think he started because his parents wanted him to do that. Because he writes every day a little piece, and if he doesn't do so, they enforce him to do it. And he has to write down that he is pitiful that he didn't write his diary, and he will better his life afterwards. So. You can see that it was not his own initiative. This morning, when Mother saw my journals of last week, she said that my way of keeping them was not to her liking, and that instead of filling them with my lessons and games, these being almost the same every day, I should rather refer to my rational behaviour and the passions that guide me. 
it's obviously part of his education. And it's also clear that every week or every month, I think it's usually his mother reads the diary and then makes comments. Otto is also made to reread his diary to learn from his mistakes. So it's obviously a pedagogical tool, so to speak. It's kind of mirror. Uh, he has to look in this paper mirror to take better notice of the points in which he should be more careful. Like not quarreling with his sister to begin with, because that's one of the themes that's very often in the diary. How can this correspond with the best intentions I had this morning? The cause of it is that I'm just too impatient. I can't bear teasing. But Mama says I must realize that my sister's just a child, and I must keep quiet to prevent rows. But my temperament just doesn't let this happen. Their main vision was that you had to learn to know your child so you could give him education which fits within this specific character. Children are born as a blank sheet and everything you do with them make impression on the mind and will make that person. Then they would become good citizens. His father was also a revolutionary. He was, uh, his ideal was to reform the Dutch society. We had a republic for two centuries with the princess of Orange, but it didn't work anymore. And he was for a very radical change and much more democracy. And at the same time, he wanted to make a new type of human beings. And his own son was, so to say, a kind of guinea pig for this new society which he wanted to make. He tried to make his son into a kind of ideal citizen of the 19th century. Now keep this in mind and act accordingly, for it is better not to make promises than not to keep them. Promise less often, rather do. There was absolutely no idea about uh, privacy. Today, I think parents are absolutely not allowed to read the diaries of their children, even if they are only nine or ten years old. But this whole idea of the diary as something completely private, I think that's a modern development. At the end of the 18th century, I was also at the cutting edge of modern developments. It was all to do with the Enlightenment. Big changes were taking place in all aspects of life. The American Revolution had given Europeans a new sense of what democracy could be, and that was followed by the French Revolution in 1789. It was in that year that the only known picture of me was painted. It was a family portrait made in pastel by a travelling artist. It's the, the family seated around a table. The father has his elbow on the table. Otto is in the centre. He's standing. He has also his elbow on the table, which is a bit too high, but he tries to look as informal as his father. Here he is obviously looking like a little gentleman, and it's um, the portrait was made just before what you could call the invention of children's clothing. Before around 1800, children simply wore the miniature clothing, uh, which was exactly the same their parents were wearing. So 
this is an elite family, so he has a very nice jacket and shoes uh, and so on. If this portrait would have been made 10 years later on, I think they would have had completely different uh, clothing. For instance, a sailor's costume, which was something which was introduced in the elite. And I think the whole idea that children should have their own clothing, which was a bit more informal, in which they could play in the gardens. Uh, it, it's part of this new idea about uh, children being a separate group, a, a separate stage in human development, which for that reason also needs separate clothing. I think the gap between children and adults is clearly growing around this time and this new style of children's dress is part of that change. He looks very smart and he looks very obedient on this portrait but I think he was obedient. He tried to be and sometimes he fails but then he's so obedient enough to write down uh, his sins and those sins are very very little. One must heed the counsel of the elderly or regret it when it is too late. Mother says, I will henceforth experience this myself, since I've been walking through the muck wearing my shoes, instead of, as my mother so often told me, putting on my clogs. This boy was raised in a period of political revolution, but also of a cultural revolution. For instance, was one of the first readers of children's books, which were only very recently introduced uh, Rousseau uh, the, who uh, was the, the great pedagogic reformer in the 18th century complained that there were no books for children Otto was born about uh, 30 years later and then people had begun writing books especially for children so he was raised in a completely different much more child friendly culture than before of course, I still had to read stodgy adult books, but I got so much pleasure from those children's ones. And I know there was a moral to many of them. The good boy has success in life. Something awful generally happens to the bad boy. Father would often ask me afterwards who I resembled in the book. I have to say that sometimes I had to answer the latter. It were the first books in which a simple language was used and stories were told about children which were very much like the children in this bourgeois milieu in which Otto grew up so he could recognize himself in the children. How great the impact must have been at the time. There are uh, Dutch children's poems like um, a garden in which uh, a boy is allowed to um, have one of the Peaches, because he is behaving very well. But here you see also the conflict with real life, because Otto writes, I wasn't allowed to pick peaches in the garden. I wasn't allowed to pick peaches in the garden myself, because three years ago I ate 12, and my parents still don't trust me. And my parents still don't trust me. <laughs> It was a part of the education, the whole reading program. So th this new type of literature was seen as something which could really bring change 
in the society as a whole. The, it was a time of really great expectations. You must remember, though, that I did come from a wealthy Dutch family. My father was from the lower nobility and studied law at Leiden University. My mother came from an even better background, a family of landowners. We were the lucky ones. I was able to play in a huge garden, and I loved playing on my goat cart and, when I was older, with horses. Most children, though, were in touch with nature in a much more brutal way. And as I look way beyond my time and into the depths of the twentieth century, I see there's been a burgeoning of the study of this side of human society. And leading his field is Jürgen Schlömbohm, who's from the Max Planck Institute for History in Göttingen. I think there were enormous differences between, say, uh, poor children, children in rural areas, and the few children of the well-to-do families and the nobility. But I think for the majority of uh, children, books and, to some extent, words and writing were not really very important. They mainly lived in with their families and with their villages, and they participated very much in the same life as adults did. The majority of children, meaning more or less poor children, the main content probably of their life was participating in work because they simply had to help the family to survive, and that from a very early age. But when they had done their work, they could go into the streets because the parents probably didn't have time to control the children in the street. And there they had a life of their own with their peer group. And many an autobiographer said that this was the most wonderful part of the childhood. But the mere fact of being able to contribute to the family income gave a sense of pride to them. This was the way they were active members of the family by this contribution to material survival. No diaries have yet been found of these poorer rural children. The Enlightenment would have passed them by. No Rousseau or pedagogics for them. But my diary isn't the only one to be found from the 18th century. A little earlier than me, writing in the mid-1740s, a girl was being taught the rules of life under a far stricter guidance than I ever was. Henrietta Hareport was her name, and she was under the thumb of her pious father. And her diary's been studied by Dr. Brigitte Schneeg from Bern University. It is obvious that the father had an eye on what she wrote, and he read it also. He also gives her indication about the use of her time, and she has to copy this into her diary. And she making reference to the father's attitude towards her, if he is pleased with her or he is not pleased. It is constantly noted in the diaries. It is a kind of record on her daily life, on her duties, on the, her neglecting of the duties. And she always is reconsidering what is the attitude of her father towards her. Is he pleased? Is he not? There is no greater benefit for us than to have somebody close to us who is able to make us realize our faults. I recognize my dear father presents his good fortune to me. He takes care to tell me my wrongs and to correct them with friendliness. He found that my greatest fault is to have a will of my own 
and to have fantasies, to be impatient and even angry, which is very true in fact. Well, she has to get up at seven o'clock, then she has to do prayers, she has to read in the Bible, then she has to go to say good morning to her. Then I should go to wish a good morning to my dear Papa, who takes the trouble of making me keep my diary, and to do one page of my exercises. All that has to be finished by 8.30. Afterwards, I'm supposed to have breakfast until nine. Then I have to study studiously in Mama's room without leaving until 11.30 to do my needlework, either embroidery or knitting or something else. Then I have half an hour break before luncheon. Until 2pm I have time for luncheon and to enjoy myself. After that I shall keep Then there is needlework again. Then there she has to memorize uh, texts. Then little break again. Then um, supper. Then she has to read books to the daddy. After supper, I enjoy myself by reading stories and other amusing books to my dear papa and to our company. In this way, I should make good use of my time. I'll get used to restraining myself and apply myself so I can hope for God's blessing. As a whole, I don't think she would complain about her childhood. As an adult person, she continued to control herself. She had internalized this kind of self-control. And she had also children when she was married, and she did the same thing with her. She controlled her. She was convinced that her father wanted the best for her and was a good tutor for her. So she did not have a sense of that she must liberate herself from these pressures of the fathers. This is very much a 20th or 21st century view of it. Well, before we come back to my life, I want you to hear about that other type of childhood that despite all the luxury and wealth and privilege seems as though it was the worst of all, the aristocratic upbringing. And there's a wealth of information. The final historian I want to bring in is Lottie van der Poel, who's been researching the diaries of women from five generations of the same German royal family. Most of it is a bit before my time, pre-enlightenment, but still it makes me happy and relieved that I had the parents I did. In our sense, they had a very unhappy childhood. They were pretty much starved for love from their parents. All of them had a bad relationship with their mothers, and four of them said, my mother didn't love me. It's kind of reproduction of a loveless upbringing within a loveless marriage. You have a life restricted by etiquette, by rank, by ritual, and family life and personal life is just not... It's not something you look for within the family. It's the governess who's really the one who brings them up. At this kind of pre-enlightenment courts, the post of a governess was sometimes given just as a favor or an adventurous who somehow got a place at the court. And there are cases where the children were simply abused. 
And we're talking about a princess, the daughter of the king of Prussia, who has a governess who's absolutely an adventuress from Holland, actually, who hit the child when she was not obedient, but took care not to do it in the face, because then people would notice. And this governess used the child to make money, because when the child had been at a dinner, And then afterwards she asked the child what had been said at the dinner table because it could be politically interesting. The child was also always hit when she came back from her parents and refused to repeat what she had heard. This is going pretty far. Is this representative or is this a kind of travesty of what women normally experienced? I think in these circles this was fairly common until the second half of the 18th century, when all thoughts about happy life, happy childhood changed also within those circles. And you see it in the case of Wilhelmina of Orange, the Wilhelmina of Prussia, we know in Dutch history, that although she had a very unhappy, unloved childhood, she was a very loving mother and had a really close relationship with her own daughter for the rest of her life. I wonder how I would have been as an adult, as a father. Well, no point in dreaming. We're getting closer to my demise already, closer to the collapse of all my parents' dreams and ambitions. But it's now 1795, and this is a special year. This is the year the French invaded our country and the House of Orange had to flee. At last, my father had his chance to put his theories into practice, but it meant my parents were rarely at home. Otto's father had an important part during that revolution. And it's very uh, interesting to see that Otto's diary at that time was not speaking about that revolution, but was speaking about a father who was always away, not at home. And he missed his father, so he's complaining about that all the time. And he also misses his mother, because she has to be there too in the evenings. When his parents are away, French soldiers pass by, who were a little bit terrifying for him. And they didn't want to go away unless he gave them some money. He writes about that in his diary. I'm very glad that this day is over, because I've had no pleasure. Firstly, Mama and Papa have been in the Hague all day, so that I was alone with my sisters. Secondly, it was cold and snowy weather, so that I couldn't go out. And thirdly, we were constantly bothered by passing French soldiers who came without officers in groups of four to six, and some of whom came over the ice and into the courtyard. We were only able to chase them away with some drinking money. The revolution in Holland, with the help of French soldiers, was successful, and his father was chosen into the Revolutionary National Assembly, and his uncle became even president of this Revolutionary uh, National Congress. All these people were very optimistic, And they were also uh, successful. And during the first two years of this revolutionary period, they were really working very hard on writing a new constitution. But 
when the process went on, more and more cracks in this solidarity became clear. You can guess, can't you? Everything collapsed. My father was imprisoned with many of his fellow revolutionaries, and ironically, his jail was an empty palace. At first, he was not allowed any visitors at all, so he arranged... We have his prison letters, which are very moving. He was allowed to write uh, one letter at a time with a soldier reading over his shoulder... But after some weeks he is allowed visitors and then his son comes to the prison and he is immediately very devastated because he sees that his son is very ill. Yesterday, because of a heavy cold, I didn't go to church. Bad weather and snow. Today's better with frost, wind east. Those were the last words I ever wrote in my diary. That was in November 1797. Tuberculosis had tightened its grip, and by the time my father was in prison, I knew it was only a matter of weeks before my earthly life would be over. Two or three weeks later, he uh, receives a message that his son is dying, and then he is allowed to go home for a few days to be at the bed of his son and... Of course, there's no longer a diary written by Otto, but this time the father has left us an extensive account of the last days of his son, which is also a very moving episode. How strange it seems to me now, reading about my death, seeing what my father wrote. Did all that really happen? But now, however much I want to stay, I must pass on the story. I must say goodbye. I must let go. So the story goes over to his father. But he writes down from hour to hour what his son was doing. And he was washing himself until the last hours. And they read for him. And what he likes most was to see little birds and flowers in his room. But he also complains that when he sees that it's more difficult for him to die. He welcomed every display of nature's loveliness. And for this reason, the flowering little trees he was sent and the little birds and fishes he kept in his room gave him much joy. And whenever the spring sun illuminated all this, he found dying much harder, he declared, than when the weather was dark and dreary. Both of his very optimistic projects, uh, reforming the Dutch society and raising a citizen of the future, both were a failure. And in his last letters, he also writes to his wife that he has lost all belief in this type of philosophy.
and in fact he returns as a broken man who doesn't has anything more to do with politics which is very sad What strikes me most was the impossibility to make a perfect human and also the tragic end of this project. Otto was also a project. It ended all very sad because he never grew up. The Diary of Otto van Eck was produced by Chris Chambers. This has been a Radio Netherlands presentation. If you'd like to comment on this or any other program, you can email us at letters at rnw.nl. That's letters at rnw.nl. Thank you.